0: For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Open in your Bibles this morning to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. This fourth Sunday of Advent traditionally has been set apart for the theme of love. Each of the candles on the Advent wreath represents hope, peace, joy, last week, and this week, love. And as we begin to think of Advent in terms of love and Christmas and the love that God sent to us, we want to make sure that the message we present from Christmas, the message we present concerning the gospel, is a gospel of love. It's easy for us to get things backwards sometimes, where the gospel message, the Christmas message, becomes one of commands, becomes one of a list of to-dos, of bullet points of things to do, or to be, or to try. And as I was thinking about this in the life of sinners, I thought about modern technology. Modern technology comes to make us smarter, to make life easier, to progress us into the future. But I wonder if you find yourself with modern technology, or maybe No no confessions here, maybe not so modern technology, and you find yourself arguing with modern technology. You know, it's one of those things where you find yourself in a conversation with an office chair or a conversation with an office printer or a copier or something. You find yourself insulting the office chair or insulting the office copier, and then you begin to wonder, is modern technology making us smarter at all? Are we progressing at all? And as I began to think of those conversations and the insults that we exchange with inanimate objects sometimes, I began to think of how we often represent the gospel and the Christmas message and how we warp and twist the story into something else. Where instead of presenting good news, we present the law. And the message of Christmas slowly shifts from what God has done in Christ to what you should be doing, and so the message of Christmas, and sadly the message of the gospel can often come across like this, be happy, love more, do better, and that can be what we take away from the Christmas season, sadly it can be what we take away from the gospel, but the gospel and the message of Christmas is not primarily a command. It is not primarily a list of to-dos. In fact, in the word gospel itself, we have what it means. It is good news. It is good news. It's an announcement. It's something that's being proclaimed. And as we remember the Christmas message this Advent leading up into Christmas, and as we celebrate the gospel every week, we want to remember that that's what the gospel is. It is a good announcement. It is good news. We want to remember what God has done in Christ by sending him For us. Now, as you come to faith in Christ, we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of the Spirit in our lives. And one of those primary fruits, one of those primary evidences is love. But we have to be careful not to get the cart before the horse, to say that we must love or do or be before we're saved. We must understand that the gospel comes as an announcement to be believed and trusted. And then by the Holy Spirit's power, we begin to be and to do and to love. We must remember that the message of Christmas is that Jesus has come not just to you to tell you something to do, but that Jesus was born for you and to do something on your behalf. Look at 1 John chapter 4, just one verse this morning. Everybody said, Amen. As if that helps, you know. First John 4.10 In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let's pray. God, this is your inspired inerrant and infallible word, we submit our minds and our imagination, our hearts to it today. We ask by your Holy Spirit you would illumine these words that we might hear the voice of our Savior, we might hear the gospel, we might hear the message of Christmas afresh. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. First John is a letter designed to help believers gauge their faith. It is a letter written to believers to help them understand what the evidence of true salvation looks like in the life of the believer in other words first John writes so that you may know that you have eternal life number one because you believed in Christ and then there are other evidences and one of the primary evidences that John focuses on is love love for God love for people and if you truly know Jesus and you've truly have been born again there will be the evidence and the fruit of love, love for God, love for people. And that's really what the entire book f- focuses on. But here in chapter 4, verse 10, we sort of have this jarring pause to all the evidence, all the fruit, all of that kind of talk. We have this jarring pause, and John reminds us but remember, the gospel is not that you have loved God, but that God has loved you. The gospel is not primarily what I have done for him, but what he has done for me. And so before we even get to the commands of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, as Paul elaborates in Galatians chapter 5, we must start here with the fact that, number one, God loved first. God loved first. This is the good news of Christmas. This is the good news of the gospel, that God loved first. He had to love first. He had to because we didn't. Does the law command us to love? Absolutely. The Ten Commandments can be summarized in those two statements, love God, love people. In fact, when the religious leaders asked Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37-40, through 40, they asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? thinking they were going to get Jesus to trip up and choose one over the other. Jesus responds famously in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. Here's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. But then he says the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. So how does Jesus summarize the law? Number one, love God perfectly. And number two, love your neighbor perfectly. So love is all wrapped up in the commands of Scripture. Love God, love people. The law says love God, love people. But if we're not careful, we could find ourselves in the situation of those arguing with a copier or a fax machine, if we still use those, I think we do, or an office chair or TV or a Roku, or some device you're going to put together for your children this Christmas, and you're going to call a playhouse stupid, even though it has no, no brain to be stupid with, we find ourselves in that situation when we think that the presentation of the gospel to people is do better, try harder, love more, be happy. And if we think that's the message of Christmas, it's just like arguing with those inanimate objects, trying to get those things to obey our commands when they can't. You're not going to get anywhere insulting the bicycle you're putting together. You're not going to get anywhere telling sinners how to behave and love better. Paul says in Romans chapter 3 verses 10 through 12 that we did not seek God, we're not righteous, Verse 11 says, no one has done good, no one seeks God, no one understands God. And he goes on to list this list of indictments against humanity that we did not love God, we weren't looking for God, we turned away from God, we were violent, we hated God. And so this indictment is severe and we hear the truth of what John is telling us here. We did not love God because we could not love God. So you're beginning to see this contradiction, seemingly, aren't you? God says to love him and love others. But we come face to face with the reality of sin that shows us that we cannot love God and love others in the way that he commands. So what do we do with that command? What do we do with the biblical command to love? If you're saying, pastor, that we can't. Look what John says here in verse 10 of chapter 4. In this is love. I think it's interesting that he says, In this is love, and then begins with a negative statement. In this is love, not that we loved God. Not that we loved God. Greek is interesting because, unlike English, where we have maybe a simple past, present, and future tense. You have other additives and things in there that make the verbs and, the, and the, the words take on further meaning. This word, not that we have loved God, is just one of those words or phrases. Because it indicates not just that we're not loving God now. It indicates not that we love God once but don't love him now. This word indicates that we never started loving God, and we still don't love him in our sins now. It indicates that that love that God requires of us was never ours to be able to give. Perfect love for him, perfect love for others. It was never there, and it was never going to be there. It never even started and so as we hear this command to love God and love people, John reminds us here, this can't begin with you. It did not begin with you because it could not begin with you. I'm glad that's not the end of the verse, aren't you? Not that we love God, but he loved us. Not that we love God, but he loved us. Aren't you glad that God loved first. Aren't you glad that as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, even when we were dead, even when we could do nothing, even when we were lost, God raised us up and made us alive together with Christ. You were dead, you were hopeless, you were helpless, you were unable, you were lost, but God raised you up to life in Christ. Here's the good news of the gospel, and it starts off sounding like not such good news, but it is precious news. The first part of the good news of the gospel is that you could not do what God commanded you to do, but for his grace. First and foremost, the gospel is an announcement of what God has done. We did not love God. We could not even begin to start loving God in our sin. But God loved us. And how does John say that God loved us? He says that he sent his only son. He sent his only son. Everyone knows John 3, 16. For God so loved the world... That he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. That first phrase we read there, I think we oftentimes hear it as God loved the world so much. For God so loved. In fact, it means this is the way in which God loved. This is how God loved. And how did God love? By sending his only son. John repeats that here in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. Here is love, vast as the ocean. Here is love, not that you love God, but that God loved you, and he loved you in this way. He sent his only son for you. This is the sum total of love. This is the climax, the peak of love. This is the zenith of God's love for us and that he sent his son Jesus for us. That God, Romans chapter 5 verse 8, even while we were still sinners, sent Jesus to die for us. I want you to take a moment and just marvel at this. When we were not looking, when we were not seeking When we could not even begin to love him, it is then that God in his love sends Jesus to us. You know, I contemplate sending my kids somewhere, whether it's to school or in the future to preschool for my younger two, or putting them just simply in the nursery, or sending them with people to go somewhere. We want to make sure we know who's taking care of them. We want to make sure we know that the the people love them and are going to be there for them, going to protect them, and they're not just being thrown out into to nothing, to strangers, but that there are people there who are going to love and protect and care for them. That's what we do for our own kids. But God sends His Son into the world, knowing the opposite was going to be true—that He was going to be mistreated, that He was going to be mocked and tortured. And executed. God sends his son into the world knowing to whom he's sending him vile sinners, rebels, enemies of God. And yet he still sends him. It would be one thing for God to send his son into the world simply to teach, simply to be a good teacher, simply to set a good example. And sure, maybe some people won't listen to him. But maybe some will. That would be one thing. But God sends his son into the world knowing that some won't just reject him, but they will murder him. And so God sends Jesus knowing that at the hands of sinners, he will be executed on a Roman cross. But I want to say something to you this morning from the scriptures that might be a surprise to you. Even those sinners were not the primary actors in the crucifixion of Jesus. And the Passion of the Christ came out in 2003 or 4, whenever it was. There was a lot of controversy in the news and the media about who killed Jesus. Age-long conversation and debate that sort of raged to the forefront with the making of that movie based on how Gibson may or may not have represented the Jewish religious leaders and so on. And so this debate erupted again. Who killed Jesus? Who was primarily responsible for the death of Jesus? Was it the Jews? Or was it the Romans? And maybe there were some of you who were so spiritual in the midst that said, no, it wasn't the Jews or the Romans, it was me. It was this vile sinner that crucified Jesus. And while all those are true in some ways, the Jews certainly delivered him over to the Romans to be executed, and it was our sin that held him to the cross. There was another primary actor in the scene. And that other primary actor was God himself. Isaiah 53 verse 10 says, it pleased the Lord to crush him. Can we even begin to grasp this this morning? That the most wicked, vilest act of sin that has ever been perpetrated on the earth by sinful human beings was nevertheless the will of God. But this is the gospel. The gospel is that God sent his son Jesus to crush him for your sin and mine. Romans chapter 5 verse 9, right after Paul says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. In Romans chapter 5 verse 9, Paul summarizes the gospel in this way. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood... Much more shall we be saved by him from what? From death? Yes. From hell? Yes. From condemnation and lostness, eternity without him? Yes. But Paul says, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. God the Father sends his only son Jesus into the world. To save us by God, to save us for God, but also to save us from God. That God saves us by his grace. He saves us for himself, but he's also saving us from his righteous wrath against sin. And this whole thing is bathed in the definite, concrete will and love of God. The Father loves His Son. The Father knows the cost. And He sends Him anyway. Why? For the glory of His name. For the love of sinners. Jesus, the Son, loves his Father. And he obeys his command to go. Why? For the glory of his Father's name. And for the love of sinners. One of the most ancient Christian hymns that we have that has lyrics and a tune to that we know some of the earliest Christians sang this hymn. Begins this way Of the Father's love begotten, ere the worlds began to be, He is Alpha and Omega, He the source, the ending, He. O ye heights of heaven, adore him. Angel host, his praises sing. Powers, dominions, bow before him and extol our God and King. Let no tongue on earth be silent. Every voice in concert ring evermore and evermore. In the last verse, Christ to thee with God the Father and O Holy Ghost to thee. Hymn and chant and high thanksgiving and unwearied praises be. Glory, power, and dominion evermore and evermore. How did it start? Of the Father's anger? Of the Father's judgment? Of the Father's impatience with sinners? No, of the Father's love begotten. We have to be careful not to fall into the ditches here. If you know me, you know this is a thing with me by now. There's there's always a way forward, and there's always ditches of error that we can fall into. And Christians of different theologies and different camps tend to fall into one of these two ditches. The first ditch to watch out for is not to think that we were so lovable and so lovely And so worthy that God somehow just had to send Jesus for us lovable creatures. But sometimes that's how we present the good news of the gospel. That we were just so lovely and so worthy that God couldn't help but save us. Now the other ditch is also to be avoided. That God did not love us. Until Jesus made us lovable. So that on one end, we have us who are making ourselves lovable to God. And on the other hand, God didn't love us and Jesus had to make us lovable to God. The gospel is neither one of those. The gospel is that while we were unlovely and while we were yet unworthy... God loved us anyway and sent Jesus for us. That is the good news of the gospel. That he, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he who knew no sin was made sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see the exchange that God made there? We were sinners. We were in sin. Christ was all righteousness. And yet there was this exchange made for unlovely, unworthy, vile sinners. God gives the righteous one, Jesus Christ, to become our sin so that we can in turn become his righteousness. An early letter that circulated in the, the church, not scripture, but an early letter, 1st first or 2nd first or century A.D., It's called the Epistle to Diognetus. And this believer was writing to an unbeliever trying to convince him of the gospel. And here's the way he summarizes the gospel. Oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the incomprehensible work of God. Oh, the unexpected blessings. That the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one righteous person. While the righteousness of one should justify many sinners. There's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of Christmas, that there was a sweet exchange made in which God gave the righteous one for sinners like you and me. The gospel, the Christmas story, is that even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, not looking for God, not seeking him out, It was then in love that God sent Jesus for us. To do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Here's the gospel in three short sentences. God loved us. God sent his son for us. And God sent his son to die for us. So the message of Christmas... Can never be twisted to be something that we must give or something that we must do or something that we must be for God. Primarily, it must be what God has done for us. It must be an announcement of this good news that God has acted in Christ to give us everything. I saw on Twitter this week a quote from a professor at Southern Seminary where I went in, in Kentucky. Dustin Binge is his name, and the first part of the tweet said this, the birth of Christ means God provides what he requires. If the gospel was up to you, if your salvation was up to you, if it was about what you could do and what you could be and what you could earn and what you could work for, if that was the gospel, we could have just been left with the law. No need for a savior. No need for God to send his son to be the sinless one, to die on our behalf, to rise for us, to ascend for us, to pray for us, and to intercede for us. There's no need for any of that because you could very well do it on your own. But the message of Christmas, as he summarized there, is that God sends his son to provide for us what he requires from us because he knew that we could not do it for ourselves. What does the law require of you this morning? What does God's holy and righteous law require of you? Love, obedience, righteousness. When Christmas rolls around and the people are out there ringing their bells with the kettles and you see the commercials for the charities, what does the season seemingly require of you? More love, more giving, more peacemaking. And you see the bullet points to begin to develop in your head that this is the message of Christmas. I got to do better. And we can unintentionally make that the message of the gospel. We need to do better. Maybe you're here this morning and you've hit the dead end in that already. Maybe you have come to the understanding that you are a dead sinner that needs a Savior. And you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus. You've stopped trying to earn it and work for it. And you have simply received it in Christ. Praise the Lord. But maybe you're here this morning... And you're still in that trap, trying to improve and to do something better and to love more and to be a better person, hoping that you can get to a point where God will finally accept you when you've done enough to earn his acceptance. Maybe that's where you are this morning. And here's the simple message to you who think that way. You need to stop thinking that the gospel is, what must I do? And remember that the gospel is to simply receive what God has already done and who God has already sent, his son Jesus. Now listen, once we come to that saving knowledge of Jesus, once our heart has been filled with his spirit and we've received the new birth and we have a new heart and we've been changed then we are freed by his mercy and grace to love God and to love people. Not to climb our way to him, but because of what he has done for us. Back in 1 John 4, verse 7, we see language like this, don't we? Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. Watch this. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now look at that language. Did John say, Beloved, let us love God and love others so that we may be born of God. No, he did not say that. What he did say was, this is how you know that you have been born of God, that you now love God and love people. Your love is not the cause of the new birth. Your love is the result of the new birth. Christians, if we're not careful, it's easy for us to twist the gospel message the Christmas message, into this message of the law. It's easy for us human beings, especially in America, where we pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and we're our our self-made, self-made men and women. It's easy for us to twist the message of the gospel and of Christmas into this. If I can just do enough and love enough and try enough, I will accumulate enough grace. If I can just spur that lost person on enough in their guilt... And in their emptiness, maybe they'll come to their senses and I'll convince them to come to faith in Christ. And I want you to see the two. There's two ditches again. I want you to see where this leaves people. If that's how we twist the message of Christmas and the message of the gospel, here's where you leave people. You either leave people in despair and emptiness and hopelessness because they realize they cannot be good enough. Or you leave people to their own self-righteousness, thinking that they are good enough. When the message of the gospel comes to say, you are not good enough, but Christ was good enough, and you can receive his righteousness by faith in him. So that the message of the gospel is not what I have given and what I have done. But the message of Christmas and the Christian gospel is as we sang in that song last week. Come all you unfaithful. See what your God has done. And then believe it. Receive it with the open hands of faith. And then show the fruit of love. In this is love not that we have loved god but that he has loved us 1 john 4:19 just a couple of verses later sums it up this way we love because he first loved us we love because he first loved us In verse 10, we saw that big theological word, propitiation. That's one of those words we read and we usually just skip over because I don't know what that means and and maybe it's not so important. Really captured in that one word is the gospel. It's interesting when you read your your scriptures and even in, in the version I read today, the ESV, that God sent his son to be the propitiation. It's interesting, in the original language, it's just God sent his son, comma, a propitiation. Yeah, he sent him to be the propitiation, but do you hear the mission in that? This is who Jesus is. This is why Jesus came. God sent his son, a propitiation. And here's what that word means. A sacrifice given to appease an angry God. In all the other false religions of the world, back in John's day and even in our day, isn't this really the core of every false religion and false gospel? We know there's something wrong with us. We know that to get to heaven or whatever it is we think is after this, we have to do something to bridge that gap, to appease whatever deity or deities there are. We have to do something to bridge that gap. And so religion comes in and says, here's how you bridge it. Here's the to-do list. Here's the bullet points. The gospel is solely unique in that. That bridge is not bridged by us. But God sends Jesus to be the bridge. God sends Jesus to be the propitiation. To lay down the sacrifice. That appeases the anger of God. That's what propitiation means. That Jesus died as a substitute on behalf of sinners like you and me. And the miracle of Christmas and the miracle of the gospel is that's why he came. That's precisely why he came. Because that's something we could never do for ourselves. Unbelievers, if you're here in the room today, and listen, sometimes when I say that, you might think yourself to be a believer because you know all the content. I know the story. I know Jesus. I know he died. I know he rose again. And and on the surface, you've signed your name on the dotted line and you've said, I believe that. But maybe your heart is not devoted to him as Lord And while you may have done something at some point in the past to say yes or make a decision for Jesus, He is not your Lord and you're not following Him. I'm talking to you as an unbeliever. Come to faith in Christ today. Place your faith and trust in Him. Turn away from yourself and turn to Him. Not bringing anything of yourself to Him, but opening your hands and receiving all He is for you. Believers in the room today, sometimes we can hear this message, we can hear this gospel, and we can think, well, I've already done that, check the box, that's not for me. I hope someone gets saved, but I don't need this anymore. Nothing could be further from the truth. If you're a believer today, you still know that struggle with sin. You still know that daily struggle with temptation and you still need this good news that God loved first and God sent his son so that every day when you fail and when you fall and when you need grace and when you need forgiveness, you can know again and again and again that because God loved first and because God sent his son to you, you have forgiveness in him gospel is for unbelievers the gospel is for believers and the simple message to all of us here today the simple message of Christmas is that even when you didn't love God he loved you and he sent his son for you in this is love let's pray our God and our father we thank you for your immeasurable love The gift that you've given us in Christ that is beyond comprehension. This love that is fast as the ocean. That you should send your only son to redeem sinners like me. God, help us this Christmas season, this Advent season, to remember that the good news of Christmas and the good news of the gospel Is not that you came so that we could turn over a new leaf and be better people. The good news of Christmas and the gospel is that you came to make dead people live. God, today, that's my prayer. If there are unbelievers here today, that you would raise them to spiritual life. Give them eyes to see, ears to hear. They might come running to Jesus in faith today. God, for those of us who do know Jesus in the room. Help us in our weakness in our sins and our temptations and our suffering and our pain to look to him as the all-sufficient Savior who receives us with open arms of love and mercy and grace. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who is here moving by your word right now. Help us to hear his voice and to obey him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.